John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 972.ne0406, certificate number 38531, Potsdamer Platz. Camera can capture but a few isolated instances of these heroic escapes, but enough to present a remarkable document of our time. Remember, these people are risking their very lives to taste something we too often take for granted, liberty. We have talked about the 20th century relic of a divided Berlin in the omnibus before, haven't we? Wait a we? minute, have we? Didn't we talk about, um, we talked about ghost subway stations? Right. Was we, it, we talked did about... Did we specifically uh, talk about U-Bahn stations, or was that just a sidelight when you talked about the FDR's train? Or no, whatever? I think we did. I think we talked about ghost U-Bahns. Der Geister Stationes. Yeah. Um, also, I think during the, uh, the Fulda Gap, maybe we did a little bit of divided Germany, certainly. I don't know uh, how well that Fulda Gap episode is aired, since we kind of scoff at a big tank war in Europe. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. It was a simpler time, 2019. We were like, can you imagine a time when... The president loved Russia. It, was, it, was, it didn't seem like that could ever happen. Yeah, and here we are. Tanks everywhere. Uh, yeah, tanks a lot, John. But the thing about, I mean, the thing about the Gen, Gen X in particular is that... Wait we, a minute, are we going to talk about Gen X? It's weird. Like being <laughs> raised in a time when the idea of Berlin as a symbol of world division, I mean, the wall's now been down longer than it was up, I, I assume, right? Well, let's see, 89. 61 to 89 is really only 28 years. Right, and since 89, it's it has been... been 30 plus, right? 33 years. Yeah. So at some point, what, 2006 or something? No, 2009 or so, the wall had been down longer than it was up. It seemed like it had been up forever. Not 2009, 2019. Yes. That's correct. Right. Um, It seemed to me in the 1980s like the Berlin Wall and the division of Europe was as old as uh, unleavened bread, but of course, to my father, it was a, you know, it was just something that was true in his forties and fifties. It's like probably the distance between now and the first Justin Bieber record or something. You know, right. It, it's such a minor. Oh, we we watched Pirates of the Caribbean: The Black Pearl last night for the first time. My daughter had never seen a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and uh, realized, oh, it was twenty years ago. <laughs> It was 20 years ago today that... <laughs> I love to watch movies of another generation. Yeah. Although my kids seem to be a little bit immune from it. Like, they seem to have more... Like, I was exactly like you. Like, if it happened six months before my birth, you know, the Beatles breaking up was just in the... Sure. The uh, uh, time immemorial. Right. You know, the unmarkable past. Whereas my kids seem seem pretty aware. Oh, no, that's a pretty... That's a pretty new show. But they'll be talking about... Um, you know, lost or something from 20 years ago. Well, we have to figure out a way to talk about this on the omnibus because there was Francis Fukuyama talking about the end of history in 1989 at the fall of the Berlin wall. It really held up. I do. We won the cold war and now <laughs> there's nothing to worry about. That part, it turned out to be hilariously uh, wrong, but culturally it does seem like the difference for me in 1978, when I was 10 years old, uh, a movie that was made in 1958. 
That's exactly right. Couldn't have been more archaic. Different planet. But watching, um, but my daughter watching Pirates of the Caribbean, she would feel like this was a contemporary movie. This is a new movie. I assume it's the rise of, I mean, cable and specifically streaming that you just have access to the old stuff and it doesn't feel like you have to tune in at a weird time on Saturday afternoon if you want to see, if you want to see Twilight Zone or Have Gun Will Travel? No, it's different. There's something else, right? Because hairstyles haven't changed that much oh, from 1990 or from 2003, this, this for sure. This is your end of history, the Rachel thing. Well, yeah, the, the clothes haven't changed. Style hasn't changed. I mean, if you, if you look at a movie, a contemporary movie from 1993 or from 2003, especially, you don't look at their fashion and go, oh my God, look at... Whereas... Do you think even a kid wouldn't? No, I don't. Because what is... What is uh, norm core, yeah. except the fashions of 1990. I think I pitched this as a problem of exhaustion. We have now done at some point around 1990, we had done every fashion, yeah, right? And now they what just else can you do? They all coexist simultaneously. Like somebody's going to be looking like they're out of 1978, and somebody across the room is going to look like they're from. And I think 1958. You know, I think in the 80s, the 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 fact that fashion and so many things went full shock. Right, like how you can't go further. If you think about Madonna in 1981 showing her belly button and everybody freaking out, well, by 1991, it what, starts in the 70s. Like, let's make pants hilariously long and right. ties hilariously wide and sideburns hilariously unkempt. But even then, that was like the fashion of 1974. Yeah. Whereas by 1994, it was like you could wear that, and you're yeah. either archaic or also really ahead of your time. The guys in hippie big buckle. In 1990, we're wearing those clothes, and it was like cool and punk rock somehow. Does that mean that even if we're talking to the the um, you know the coral, the giant corals of of 3000 AD, that um, they still have all this fashion and awareness? I think that right now there's a giant coral wearing a sleeveless esprit sweatshirt and thinking it's really contemporary. And he's going to go home and watch The Office. Uh huh. And, and just his, be like, and his friends are like, "You're so dumb. Park and Rec, Parks and Rec was better." And he's like, whatever, man. Whatever, man. The and, office. He, and then he's going to put on LCD sound system <laughs> and be like, totally new, rad disco music. It is kind of refreshing, though, that my kids don't have any kind of stigma against old music or old media in any way. Like, well, it, Refreshing it seems, to you because you feel not super old and Well, the irrelevant. generation gap doesn't, yeah, but, tr- but the generation gap doesn't form in either direction, you know? Right. Uh, as long as old people are willing to try to, to try to keep up with their music, which is increasingly easy to do. Because no matter what you hear, you're like, this shoegaze sounds like the following bands. This right. pop sounds like the following bands. You know, like it kind of smooths out any possible generational rift. Now the rifts are all caused by which generation put most the most hydrocarbons in the atmosphere, or not us. Which generations repealed Roe v. Wade? Not us. No, no. That's it's all Generation X again because b- absolved of all responsibility. Actually, that's not true. I was about to say that, I was about to say it's still the boomers running the world, but that's not true. Of the Supreme Court. <laughs> which is all, th- which is all thirty-eight-year-old oh, Federalist Society dweebs now. <laughs> dweebs is the word. They're all younger than us, I think. Uh, is, is that true? Are there any Supreme Court justices younger than you and me? Younger than us? How, yeah, how I think is, there are. I mean, there's about to be when Justice Jackson is confirmed. But now it, you know exactly how old is Brett Kavanaugh. Brett me, Kavanaugh was. He born is almost in, exactly my age, but I wonder if it's. Uh, a, he's born in sixty-five. Oh, okay. These well, guys just seem youthful. No, it's the 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 latest. Um, a- Amy, 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 Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse. Amy, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, she was born in seventy two, so younger than me. You have your first Supreme Court the justice younger than first me. Supreme Court justice younger than me, and now there will be two, and then there were two. Katanji Brown Jackson, assuming her confirmation, we're really dating the show. Otherwise, oh, nineteen seventy. So I still will not have a Supreme Court justice younger than me, but you will have two younger than you. I will have two younger than me, really confirming how Generation X I am and how not Generation X you are. And if you're older than a Supreme Court justice, like they can do, you can have them do whatever you want. I remember, you know, my dad. I think well, who was the first president that was younger than my dad? Uh, Carter was older. Reagan was older. All presidents have been were born in the same year since Carter. Actually. I know. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. It's probably it, it had to be Clinton. It's got to be Clinton. Um, because oh no 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 oh George Herbert Walker Bush was younger than my dad. He was no. my uncle's age. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, you know you know uh, George H W Bush and my uncle Jack went to Yale together and were skull and bones together. 
Well, so my uncle got tapped for skull and bones and rejected them <gasps> because he was a West Coast anti-snob. And he and and he didn't want to rub one out on Alexander Hamilton's cranium. Or no, whatever? he 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 was a typical Seattle guy. He thought he was superior because he was from the Hardy West and had held an axe. I have to say, I do make fun of some of my Ivy League friends. Is that a, is that part of being from Seattle? I think it is. It's reverse snobbery, except not based on class, but based on based on inferiority complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he t- Jack told this story about he was on an airplane and uh, and. Bush was on the airplane and this was, this was in the, I guess he was in the Congress, probably not heading the CIA yet. Bush, and, was, Bush was briefly in the house, right? Yeah. And, and Jack was getting on the airplane and he said, Jack, Jack, great to see you, you know, come sit with me. And uncle Jack was like, oh, I've got a friend in the back. I need to go. And this was, you know, back when there was like a lounge on the airplane <laughs> right. or whatever. There's somebody playing the piano up in the bubble. And then later on, cause they were both inv- involved in the oil business. Later on, there was some situation where Bush was in Texas and Jack was in Alaska and there would have been some oil handshake about it. But Jack felt like Bush was mad because he'd snubbed him on that American Airlines flight in 1966. You know, you know what? Brushes with greatness. For whom? For, for, for Bush. Yeah, he, exactly. he, he knew my Uncle Jack. The, uh, I was reading a novel the other day in which it's, it's, uh, you're the last guy to be able to say that from the early eighties. And it's a plot point in this novel that, uh, Berlin is somewhere where you would go to hide out. Right. Like for, it's not on the tourist track. So if you're afraid of a, you know, in this book, a Getty style kidnapping, you, you head to Berlin. And isn't that a funny idea that, you know, what was 20, 30 years, 40 years earlier, you know, one of the world's great cities, and 40 years later is one of the world's great cities, was briefly a weird asterisk no man's land. Well, so, you know, the the Federal Republic of Germany had moved their capital to Bonn, so it was no longer a political uh, center. And it was an era, even in the United States, where major cities were all no longer where things were happening, right? Detroit, you could have hit out in Detroit or Philadelphia, but, you know, I went to Berlin in the 80s, and it didn't feel like the, I mean, it felt like the center of U2 videos, but it didn't feel like a... Um, My knowledge also comes from pop culture. Yeah. U2 and Vim Vendors. It didn't come from, it didn't feel like the center of the universe. It felt like a, it was a, a super weird vibe there. But you watch, you know, 1920s oh, I know. videos, you know, Roaring Twenties videos set in Berlin, and... It was, so sexy. It was the third biggest city on earth. Uh, I think 4.4 million people just behind New York and London. So it's New York, London, Berlin. It's not. It's a cultural center. It's an arts center. People were jitterbugging. They were being. They were doing very sexy things in Berlin in 1924. Like what? Like maybe 150 times sexier than anything that was happening in New York or London. Super duper duper decadent. The there. least sexy cabaret in Berlin would be banned in London. And this was part of the problem. Right? The Nazis didn't like it. But Berlin yeah, is a victim of its own decadence. Mm. And, you know, not like me. Decadence, decadence, <laughs> not, decadence being Nazi code for Jews. Not Aryan enough. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, but that was not always the case. Berlin was not always a world center. In the 18th century, it wasn't even the biggest city in what would today be Germany. In the 18th century? Yeah. As late as the 1700s. Oh, right, because it, there was no Germany there then. Was no Ger- I mean, to the degree there was a Germany, like the biggest cities in the... Future Germany. The future Germany. The uh, biggest one was Vienna in Germanic yes. zones, and then Munich? And there's a, Hamburg? Actually, still Hamburg, Hamburg, left over from its Hanseatic League greatness. Hanse- right. uh, Hanseatic. Uh, Hamburg and Nuremberg, being the center of Bavaria, right. Bavarian's culture and industry, were the biggest cities in uh, what is now Germany. Right. Um, Prussia and slash all the crazy splintered little duchies. And Berlin in particular was, I mean, it, I think the, elector, the electorate was called Brandenburg. Yeah. And famously just a terrible place to try to grow anything. Like until Frederick the Great talked Brandenburgers into potatoes, like 
it was kind you, of you a, could barely scrabble scrabble out a living in that part of Europe, much less build a, a cosmopolitan. Yeah, city. like an unfertile plain, right? Kind of ha- partly swampy and partly just deserty. The etymology of Berlin is believed to be uh, the old Palabian stem "birl," meaning swamp. Yeah. Today, it's often conflated with their uh, their uh, the German word "bear," meaning bear, and so like you'll see a bear pictured on the city emblems and statues of bears and whatnot. Rawr. But really, it's just the swamp city. It's it's uh, it's the river Spey, right? That's Spray? kind of uh, that's like f- just curving around there, swamping it up. And today, like if you walk through Potsdamer Plots, the setting of our show, you will almost certainly notice uh, these giant pink kind of Dr. Seuss tubes that that head all over the city. Have you seen pictures these giant yeah. pipes or pictures of them? I've been there, yeah. They're colored they're colored pink or purple generally, I think, to kind of whimsicalize up gayify, gayify it. To, yeah, to, to make them more like a twenties cabaret. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're they're uh, construction stuff in drag. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> these aren't tubes. It's because anytime you dig a foundation in Swampopolis, you it immediately fills up with water. And you got to keep draining that into the spray. So is that what those tubes do? It is. No, really? And the first time I was on Potsdamer Plots, I was like, oh, what a funny idea to, to show where the wall was with these insane pink tubes just above head level. No, these are raised passages. I mean, somebody's building a building and they're draining. No way. I thought that it was just some German weirdness. It is, but it's full of swamp water. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. I didn't know either. I had to Google. And I'm sure there must have been a sign that said it in German. And I was like, ha ha, look at that funny language. <laughs> look at these long words. <laughs> I'm American. I'm not learning that. Well, somebody will speak English. Sprechen Sie English? Like you look and you have to look at the ground in Potsdamer Plots to see these little rectangular plaques that say... Berliner Mauer, 1961 to 1989, almost like a grave. Uh, of the buildings or of the... That's the wall. It, oh, you the know, wall, There's yeah. one of those every, I don't know what, 50 feet or something. So you can, if you're a Cold War tourist, which is increasingly uh, a cash cow for Berlin. Hello, friend. <laughs> <laughs> if you miss the Soviets as much as we do. Well, and the, and the Berlin Wall turned in Potsdamer Platz. It was like there was a big left-hand turn there. So There's an elbow, yeah. Yeah, you got it, you got it coming and going. Potsdamer Platz uh, is where I stayed the only time I was ever in Berlin. I, I had not been in Berlin until a couple of years ago. Oh. So I missed out, except for YouTube oh, videos you, and Vin Vendor's movies. You stayed at Neu Potsdamer Platz. I stayed in <laughs> Disneyfied Times Square. Potsdamer Platz is in maybe one of the most interesting 150 acres in Europe. It's had quite an adventure especially over the last century. And, uh, you know, you, you're struck by what a great location it is. You're 10-minute walk from the Brandenburg Gate there. Tiergarten all up in it's your the, business. It's the corner of the Tiergarten. It's right where Leipziger Strasse going east-west meets Friedrichstrasse going north-south. And those are two of the big axes of Leipziger that part Strasse of being the road to Leipzig and uh, Friedrichstrasse being the road to Friedrich. And that's why it's called... <laughs> yes, there's like always a guy named Friedrich standing there. It's Friedrich von Trapp. There he is. Hi, hello. Adieu, adieu to you and you and you. The uh, the reason why it's called Potsdamer Platz is because that was the beginning of the road to Potsdam. If you're in a European city and you right. see a a street or a, a plaza named for another a square named for another European city, it's probably where the highway to that city ended up you know you you uh in order to get here have to drive down des moanes memorial drive at some point i'm assuming do you guys say des moanes here in the south end we do des moanes uh but uh, that's not the canonical pronunciation <laughs> weirdly we have a town here nearby called des moines where we don't pronounce the s on the days but we do pronounce the s at the end in iowa they don't pronounce either s. they say des moines and in seattle we think that's a little bit problematic. Des Moines. But we're not going to say them both because that would seem a little bit try hard. We're not dumb. <laughs> we're not idiots. <laughs> Des Moines. We say the second one only. Des and, Moines. And Des Moines means the mounds. I think. And But here it means the moundses. <laughs> so we just take it all the way to Des Moines. The reason why Potsdamer Platz became a cultural merchant art center, it, it begins in the 1700s when, again, Berlin is still... Uh, it's still, I mean, yeah, pretty much. Um, it's building its first customs wall, which is, you're a gated city, but it's not for um, military protection. You just want to make sure you levy taxes on any wagon and anything coming in and out. Oh, I see. Right. So you stop everybody and, and take a take a little A toll. guy with a clipboard says, well, 
let me count the sorghum in here, dumb Kevin. Kind of the, the last time I drove from Slovenia to Austria, I got stopped at the border and they said, oh, your papers aren't in order. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it was clearly a, for 50 euros, we can make this problem go away. I had that between Guatemala and Belize, and I just happily paid it because I wanted to go see the ruins. What was funny is my dumb Kevin-ness, I didn't get it. I didn't get it was a shakedown. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? That's These are American passports, sir. And he was like, you know, something, something, something. And I said, well, I'll just sit here and wait until you get this problem resolved. And they pulled me over and parked me there. And I watched as the border guards were talking to each other. You know, it's a, it's a busy intersection. People are coming and going. They're talking to each other and pointing at me. And I'm sitting there with my arms folded in my car, <laughs> but not being clever. You're just like, what a, I'm like, this is a very inefficient operation. <laughs> I say, why is no one else being stopped here? This is outrageous. <laughs> and I was in a van that had a bunch of stuff in it. Right. And so of course they were like, well, we're going to levy some. And eventually they got bored and the guy came over and kind of, you know, disgustedly was like, go ahead. And I was like, well, it's about time. And then later I was like, oh, wait, that was just a shakedown. I could have gotten out of there an hour earlier. Well, that happened to us in Central America. The, the vibe was very different because it's a nine-year-old kid doing it. Right. And so then when, you're, when you know he's just, you know, you don't need to go make a photocopy of my passport. And there is absolutely no, um, you know, 200 centavo fee for this. But, you know, you don't want to. You yeah. know, it's a nine-year-old kid, right. you know, and uh, it's it was probably eight bucks. So, fine. Now, these were 25-year-old Slovenians, and I wasn't going to give them 50 euros. <laughs> they were just going to spend it on... Um, yeah, Suica somewhere. What's that plum stuff? Yeah, Brandy. That's I, I use the Romanian name, but... What's the other... What's the thing that... Uh, Uzo. No, plum brandy. You're talking about... Uh, uh, what do we call that? Uh, is there a German name that's better known than... There is. Schlivovitz. Schlivovitz. <laughs> there we go. You said the same thing. You said Sliva. We were on the same. What does that mean when your phone finds a submarine like that? Ba-ding, ba-ding, ba-ding. Well, in this case, it means Mike Squires is calling. Oh, that's your ring. And Mike Squires uh, texted me yesterday and he was like, Sunny Day Real Estate is getting back together and they need a bass player because Nate Mendel is going to not leave Foo Fighters to play with them. And he's like, I want to audition for Sunny Day to play the bass. But I don't know anybody in Sunny Day. Will you, will you put my bass audition tape into somebody in Sunny Day Real Estate's hands? Presumably Jeremy Enoch, and I'm and I'm avoiding his phone calls because I don't want to deal. But with in this. a couple of months, when this podcast comes out, he's going to know. Well, yeah, but that's two months from now. It's not by that's, then. That's future John's problem. <laughs> that's right. It won't be. It's not my current problem. The uh, so they build this wall around the city, and I don't know, fourteen or sixteen gates in it. Uh, of which I think only the Brandenburg Gate is still extant today. Oh, the Brandenburg Gate is part of the tax wall. I mean, I'm sure at one point it was expanded as a military memorial. But yeah, that was originally the Eastern Gate oh. to Berlin. Um, and did the Tiergarten exist at this point? Yeah, Berlin didn't go out here at this point. So, oh. I mean, the Tiergarten might have been forest, but it's because the city didn't hadn't reached this far out. Oh. You know, uh, Frederick the Great had let... Jews and Huguenots come back. He was a real open-minded guy nice and was guy. like, come on back. I mean, as long as they don't get full legal rights and pay heavy taxes, I guess it's okay if a few Jews and Huguenots, I mean, you wouldn't want your daughter marrying a Huguenot, but. And did they live in the city or was it a situation where they lived right outside? The a city? lot of them had money. And so uh, they would build little fashionable villas at what was at this point, the Eastern woods outside Berlin. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, Frederick the Great would drive through this gate, the Potsdamer Tor, on his way to Sans Souci, that was you know, which was in Potsdam. His so oh, there, that was his like country. That, that place. was his Versailles. So there was some cachet to the fact that you know the king would always be driving through this gate on his way to the nice part of town, and fashionable villas oh, started to so, grow. So up you could there. wave at him as he went by. And there was a, you know, and that means military presence if the king is there, which means there's a parade ground there. So what is today, um, I mean, Potsdamer Platz includes, you know, kind of this octagonal area, which I think is technically Leipziger Platz. And all that started as just a parade ground for, for military horses, which is why nothing was built there. What's funny is that current Berlin, and I mean 20th century Berlin, the 
Brandenburg Gate and <laughs> Tiergarten are not on the eastern edge of it, right? The center of Berlin. I mean, the wall, is, the wall went right through it. So we think of that as the center of Berlin. Right. But in 1800. Because the center was Charlottenburg or something over yeah, to the west. Exactly. Oh. Uh, so. I, I love that uh, you and I are going to be pronouncing all these wonderful German words, which are so beautiful in their home language, and we're going to be just butchering them. And I, I, I think that's fine. I take great pleasure in it because, you know, we are the conquerors, right? <laughs> like, we did defeat them in a war, and so... I mean, the Soviets kind of took Berlin. Shouldn't we say it in a Russian they accent? They took half of Berlin. Uh, the, the, the middle half. This, uh, the idea of a show about Potsdamer plots was suggested by uh, a Patreon donor named Jochen, who's a, oh, Jochen. a fan of, of ours, and particularly of yours. Well, Jochen is a German who has decamped to Scandinavia, so he does not live in Germany. And his request was anything about Germany or Sweden. Oh, right. And he later you know, included a few ideas, including Potsdamer plots. But I was sorely tempted to just wait till somebody else requested any show having to do with Germany or Sweden. And then... Uh, double up on it? Double up on them. Each of you gets half a show. You could lump it. Uh, the... Oh, and knowing this is Jochen, he's not a Berliner. Um, Where's he from? Well, he's from... He told us, and I can't remember. He's from a little south there, right? Isn't he from... Uh, he's he from... Bavarian? Does he talk like Herzog? No, he doesn't. But I think he's from um, uh, Weimar. Hmm. Somewhere around there. I'm not sure. Don't Jochen, don't be mad at me. If I said that, if I got that wrong, and you're actually from uh, Ulm. He's just happy that we're still talking about him, honestly. <laughs> he gets talked about a lot by me, actually. Let's get I all bet the, he's bored. Let's get all the biographical <laughs> details wrong, because it's still airtime. What's wrong? What's bad is when they don't talk about you on the podcast. That's right. In 1800, what really changed the face of uh, what will become Potsdamer Plots is not the king riding by every weekend. It's not... The new money building their villas there near what is today the Tiergarten. It is Germany's first train station. Or maybe oh. Berlin's first train station? Oh. The, the region's first train station. Oh, I wonder about this there. all the time. You know, when you go into a train station in a, in a European city, like when you go into, when you take a train into Rome, and you're like, there have been buildings here for thousands of years, but somehow they tore enough of them down to build a train station the, all the yeah, way to the the decision of how and where to run in the tracks must have been analogous to eisenhower era interstate building right? well because in paris right they didn't put a train all the way through the city they built all those dumb train stations out on the outskirts but other cities were like going right in going all the way in maybe there was less city in some of them that must have been it you know like in london you know what is today paddington king's cross especially victoria those are dense parts of town but like what, what do you think Victoria did? What do you think the South Bank looked like 200 years ago when they're building those train stations? I'm reading David Copperfield right now. And at a certain point, he's staying in a hotel by Charing Cross. And it feels like it's kind of out in the... <laughs> On the sticks? Well, not sticks exactly, but it's definitely not. I mean, it's funny that they call it the West End now. Yeah. Well, you know, when every time I go to the West End, I pretty much have to travel east to get there because I'm yeah. coming from Notting Hill or someplace. Uh yeah, the capitals had very different outlines then. But, you know, the Leipzigerstrasse is part of a, I mean, that's a, that's a road that at the time would have been connect. You know, it's the Berlin part of a highway that could have taken you from Paris to St. Petersburg. Oh, oh, sure. There was a, there was a cross-continental highway in, at that point in time that you'd start in Paris and get to St. Petersburg on one road. I mean, it, it, it's, not a, it's not the highway you would imagine. <laughs> right, right. It, it but, doesn't have very pavement and rest stops, but... Um, but it, might, it but probably it's, it's, had ha ghost houses, the, the yeah. length of it. In cities, it's cobbled, probably. Um, so, when the, so it's a normal place for the train to come through. And of course, when the train comes through, it immediately becomes a center for, uh, you know, not just of political power or of geographic convenience because of the gates, but it becomes a big mercantile um, center. That's, that's where Berlin's big cargo unlading happens because it's a city without a port. Right. I had a very exciting moment going to the mail the other day. Oh, what John, happened? I got sent some amazing new products from Native. I got some too. Were yours like, were yours flavors that had cupcake in the name? I have been using their mint cookie cupcake body wash or maybe it's mint cupcake cookie body wash two different baked goods in my body wash 
cookie and cupcake. Because I before I had this, I would have to stand in the shower and just rub cookies and cupcakes all over my body, and it wasn't helping. I had a, I got a lot of ants on me. Well, I had two. I had two things go on. When I opened it, I was like, "Is this going to? How is this going to be cookie and cupcake?" And when I smelled it, it was both cookie and cupcake. And then, of course, I thought, "Why would I want that in my soap?" But then it turned out I really like it. I also got some fresh peach cupcake. I think it was deodorant. I can't remember which was which. And it really does smell like a fresh peach cupcake, <laughs> if that's a thing. So like the hard part is just like making sure you you rub it on your underarms and right. not and not just eat the whole thing in one sitting. Well, so this body wash, uh, it's a it's a, a, a large bottle, and I've been using it every day, and uh, it tingles in a refreshing minty way. But the cupcake and cookie thing, it goes so naturally with my normal sort of cupcakey scent that um, it's, a, it's a, a pleasure to have with me all day long. It's a collaboration with a tiny cupcake bakery called Baked by Melissa. Okay. These are like based on the delicious creations of that uh, company's founder, Melissa Ben Ishe, mixed with natives, we've plugged these before, simple but effective formulations. To surprise and delight consumers with every wash and swipe. When I wash and I swipe, mm-hmm. I like to be delighted every single time. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, Native delivers. Other brands, it might be every three times, every six times even. Not Native. You know what a drag it is to swipe and not be delighted. Oh, it's the worst. So You, you just keep swiping, hoping to feel something. Yeah. Feel something. I used to feel something when I swiped. So the Native Baked by Melissa collection has four separate scents available in deodorant, body wash, and shampoo and conditioner. And they still have the same guarantees you come to expect from Native. It's aluminum-free, vegan and cruelty-free. The ingredients are naturally derived. You'll recognize everything on the label, if that matters to you. The limited edition scents are tie-dye vanilla cupcake, mint cookie cupcake, that solves that question, fresh peach cupcake, and ginger lemonade cupcake. Mm, smell and feel fresh all day long with Native. And you'll get 20% off your first order by going to nativedo.com slash omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout. That's nativedo.com slash omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout for 20% off your first order. Delight in every swipe. And in 1871, later that century... Berlin becomes the capital of, uh, well, Prussia. Right. And thence of a unified Germany, uh, except for the Interregnum, uh, when we were born. And that's when it becomes the third largest city in the world after only New York and London. And in particular, Potsdamer Platz is the Times Square of Europe. Thank you, Bismarck. The uh, In almost every way. You know, that's where... It, at night, the, the first street lights are there, so it's an electric-lit place. It's got hotels. It's got all the big department stores. Discos. Eventually, yes. But at first, people bustling to the theater to see oh, right. Brecht or Weil or whatever Max Reinhardt's putting on. With their know? tiny umbrellas and their big bustles. Exactly. Uh, you know, nervous Jewish theater critics with notebooks and little spectacles. All the fashionable cafes. That's where Cafe Yosti was, where... Um, you know, German expressionism was born because that's where the artists would hang out. But it wasn't just the Bohemian part of town. It was it was the it was the mecca for all kinds of arts and culture. Um, there was a uh, there was a giant uh, <laughs> what Wikipedia still calls a pleasure palace. Yes, not what you're thinking. Go on. I guess there's just not a word for what this was. This giant domed restaurant called House Vaterland, Fatherland's House. It was actually Kempinski's House Vaterland until it got Aryanized by uh-huh. Goebbels. And uh, they dropped Kempinski from the name and probably dropped all the Kempinskis from the world, from the world, unfortunately. Um, but in its time, this was the place to see and be seen. Giant domed cupola. Inside, it's kind of like an Epcot center where there's, I mean, there's stages and theaters and a, you know a pool and there's a there's so basically a, the west lake center yes it's, it's it, but it's more than a mall because it's got it's epcot center because it's got like um um like a series of restaurants each with a different kind of german cuisine 
Like you go in the you go for Bavarian food and it's some kind of fake Oktoberfest with mountains or whatever. You go to the the Rhine Land and it's got uh, uh, you know an actual artificial river flowing through the restaurant and every hour there's fake thunder and rain right you know and of course all these places have elaborate floor shows and they're they're the kinds of um depraved pansexual cabarets that everybody wants in 1920s berlin all the different kinds of german cuisine they've got the schnitzel with mushroom sauce the schnitzel with pepper sauce the schnitzel with an egg on it. That might be it, actually. The schnitzel. They've got kartoffel. What about, you you got to have that big... Um, schnitzel. What's that big ham hock thing? The, the, well, that's Spanish more, right? No, like it comes on the bone. This oh, is big yeah, yeah, beer, right, right. beer stuba food. Right. Well, um, and all the sausages, the different sausages. But that's it, right? Pretzels, mustard. Are we it. done? Yep. <laughs> I think so. Potatoes in its various forms. And by various, I mean kartoffel, salat, and schnitzel because right. that's it. You've got the white asparagus. Yeah, you've got canned canned vegetables that, that should have been, jarred vegetables that should have been green but aren't. And then, yeah, it's just, it's schnitzels all the way down. But I love the idea that they have a series of regional restaurants serving... Different schnitzels. Serving different schnitzels. <laughs> yeah. Or you you can't get the mushrooms just like this if you're out of Bavaria. Well, in all of the different German uh, uh, environments, swamp, <laughs> hill... <laughs> And swamp by hill. Yeah, and forest. Right. Swamp, hill, and forest. There are a hundred thousand cars driving through this plots every day. The, the first traffic light in Europe is it's a five-way intersection. Yeah. The first traffic light in Europe is installed there. Whoa. Uh in the early 20th century. If you've ever seen um there's, there's this Roaring Twenties documentary, and it's not, it's more of a kind of a poetic tone poem, kind of a Koyaanisqatsi thing called Berlin, Symphony of a Great City, hmm. which is really just all about the bustle of mostly Potsdamer plots. Like almost the whole thing is shot there, and you're just supposed to be amazed at the various kinds of railways and streetcars and human sea and, look at them go. and seas of cars. There. Look at look at a city on the grow, and it's, real, it's really just supposed to be, you're supposed to be dazzled by the the potential of the 20th century. Yeah, it's all it's like all those we have the same sort of 19th century films of Madison Square and the Flatiron Building. Well, there's one called Manhattan about New York. The most famous one is probably Giga Vertov's Russian one made in Moscow or ooh, is that Moscow? I think it's Moscow. But yeah, there were a series of these like, look at what cities are. Here's a horse cart. It's oh, magic. Ding ding, it's a trolley. And you know, much of that potential of the 20th century ran right into National Socialism. Womp, womp, womp. Is, that the, is that the sound you make? <laughs> it's the sound trombone when, when, of when, National Socialism. When Hitler wins the Chancellery, <laughs> do you make that sound? Womp, womp. It's a sad tuba. Could have been, should have been, would have been. It's an oompa band. No, I feel that way about World War I. You know, I, I think that the world, uh, Europe and especially, but the world in general, would have been so different without World War I. You know, that was an, an, uh, a generation of... People that were exploring the arts in new and exciting ways. It was a time of great affluence, a time of new budding technology, and and it was all squandered. You get the jazz age after it. Is that just um, those are just people? Uh, Pretty yeah, whistling like, past the graveyard. A little. I mean, you know, and then and then the depression. Just one short decade later, it did. It did feel like um, there was. We got one decade of of like pretty cool androgyny and some saxophones, and then yeah, it all went to double triple shit. Sax and sex. There were yeah. So the depression uh, brings fascism, brings big changes to Berlin. All the exciting arts and intellectual movements that would have made Postdamer plots a magnet for the continent are now gone. Hat tip to uh, the the. Uh, the usurious reparations of the French at uh, <laughs> Versailles. You're going to blame the French. <laughs> As per usual. The uh, Albert Speer obviously had big plans for Berlin. Oh, right. Famously, like literal plans, like blueprints drawn up for... Um, large, large boulevards. Welthauptstadt Germania, you know, the capital of the new world government, which would, of course, be Berlin. And yeah, it's all just amazing monumental scale. Boulevards a mile wide and... Uh, he didn't really have big, he didn't have any specific plans for Potsdamer plots. Like he wasn't like, this is where the whatever ministry is going to be. 
But it, it definitely, there was going to be a big north-south axis along the Friedrichstrasse, which means, uh, you know, maybe that just would have been in the middle of some big Hitler-themed national mall. And he was not even, he, he was going to call it Germania, right? He yeah. was to change the name. Berlin is out, Germania in. Yeah, isn't it, am I wrong? What is that right? Welthauptstadt, something like that. World capital Germany, oh, basically. Oh, yeah, world capital Germany. Uh, spoilers never actually got built because not that far from Potsdamer plots, uh, Hitler was killed by that heroic German soldier, Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Right. Uh, put a bullet in his head. The, uh, I mean, it's, but what that implies is that Hitler's chancellery was just like a block away from Potsdamer plots and, you know, the bunker, a short walk, which means that that area was just ravaged by allied bombing. And then um, Soviet um, Soviet uh, cannons, and then soldiers. Thirty percent of Berlin was leveled in the good thirty percent in the mid forties, and unfortunately, like that was really centered on Potsdamer plots. You know, I mean, it had been a shadow of its former self um, under National Socialism, but it was just a big vacant lot. I'm surprised to hear that it was only thirty percent. I think of Berlin as having been substantially more destroyed at the end of the war. I mean, you think of there are cities in, in Germany where nothing was left. I mean, there's nothing left of Dresden. Right. And I, I would have imagined, um, they, they, uh, expended all remaining ordinance on, on Berlin. Yeah. But I mean, maybe better fire control, you know, keeps, keeps damage from spreading. You know, if you've got all your ministry buildings there, either above or underground, I guess you just got to, I mean, Spirit of the Blitz, except the opposite of that. What's the opposite of the Spirit of the Blitz? <laughs> it, might be, it might be also that they're counting like, well, the tear garden wasn't destroyed. <laughs> the gazebo's still up. <laughs> you can't get an orangina there, but, or you can't get that weird Pepsi uh, orange mix we were talking about. So, yeah, it says that at the beginning of the war, the population of Berlin was four and a half million and the biggest uh, city on earth. And then at the end of the war, there were only two and a half million people. A lot of people left. Some not by choice. Yeah. A lot of people were killed. Most not by choice. They're probably all not by choice, except for Hitler. Yeah, it seemed to be his choice. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have a lot of good options at that point. Hmm. No. And I, right. by at that point, I mean he's already killed Ava and the dog. Right. By that point, he's kind of pot committed. He's yeah. He's really painted himself into a corner. And strategically and in his personal life. To our, to our listeners who are worried that we are being too flippant about the death of Adolf Hitler, you're right. What can you what can you be flippant about if not the <laughs> What can we celebrate about World War II if not the death of Adolf Hitler? That's true. That's true. If there's one thing we can be pretty mockingly dismissive of, it's everything that happened. We should be clear. We are not celebrating his whole catalog. No, that's right. Uh, Potsdamer plots happen to be in the post-war occupation of Germany where three of the four occupation zones met the Americans in the West, the British in the South and the Soviets in the East all met at Potsdamer Platz. So the Americans were in the South, the British were in the West Is that right? and, and the Russians were in the East. And then the French were in the, the French have this weird corner up in the Northwest sort of, uh, you know, over there. Am I picturing it backwards? Yeah. The, the, oh, yeah, you're the right. French yeah, were yeah, in the, Amer the, the American sector is Southwest. Yeah, that's right. So the Americans had all of Bavaria and then this French corner where they were like, it's ours, we are the victors. It's like, oh, okay. And then the British had all of that Munster land and what's, whatnot. So Potsdamer Platz is the exact, you know, it's, it's rubble, but it's also the exact meeting point of the three zones which, which makes sense right that's the crossroads yeah which means it becomes the kind of the little triangle where you know from whence you know uh transit and uh transactions between the those three allied powers take place oh so that's why the wall did a little uh, hook there the hook is between the american sector heading east and the british sector heading north oh. i believe the, uh, if I'm looking at the right hook, and I think I am. Give you the right hook. If not, that could be further north. Is that hook where that is? Uh, the, it also means a, a vibrant black market appears there. But that's really all Potsdamer Platz has 
going for it. At the end of the war. At the end of the war. Um, And going forward. Like the remaining buildings are kind of torn down and it just becomes kind of a fringe area, uh, you know, on on the edge of everybody's consciousness, Soviets, Americans, and British alike. And then, of course, in 1961, it becomes the widest spot in the Berlin Wall, the narrowest spot of the Cold War. Uh, famously, the Berlin Wall was not one wall. It was two with a, a patrolled and barbed-wired and mined, etc., death strip in between uh, just to make escape impossible, not merely difficult. You could climb over the Berlin Wall, and then you're just in an alley where they're mine. You're going to get shot or blown up or eaten by a uh, German shepherd. And Potsdamer plots it was a whole big no man's land of 160 nothing. yards wide. The widest, the death strip was literally, there's literally 160 yards between the easternmost wall and the westernmost wall. There. That's 160 meters for our international listeners. It's <laughs> helpful. Uh, an interesting thing I hadn't realized is that. Um, you know, West Berlin moved the capital, but so, you know, it didn't have to worry about all the government buildings that had lost to the east. Because the, the line was well to the west of what we would think of as the center of Berlin, including the Reichstag and all of it. So you, wa- you walk down these streets today and you see on the German side, you see all the kind of weird, brutalist buildings that were hurriedly built to replace all the cultural and business centers that have been lost to the East. And then you pass a little plaque on the ground that says Berliner Mauer. And then you start to see, you know, big old grand government buildings where you can tell that where the communist seals and murals have been removed. Um, Or in some cases, I think they kept the murals around as for historical interest. But, you know, those are government buildings that were capital buildings from the, you know, in the GDR era from the forties into the, into the late eighties. And it is a very pronounced difference. It's a crazy change. And in particular, it's because uh, right by what was and be, would again be Potsdamer Platz, West Germany built their Kultur, what came to be called their Kultur Forum, which was their big library, museum, symphony arts complex, kind of in the shadows of the Berlin Wall itself, because that's where there was real estate. You know, you, you need to rebuild all the cultural stuff you lost to the East because you're Symphony has nowhere to practice, and there's not a lot of real estate. So a lot of that stuff was built on the edge of, of Potsdamer plots. Um, I first saw this part of Berlin in the... You ever see the Wim Wenders movie, Wings of Desire? I've heard of the Wim Wenders movie, Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire? But you know, you're like one of the... You're a cinemaphile, and I was uh, this, not going to... This, was my, this was my very early cinemaphilia days where I had read like Michael Stipe or somebody say that they liked this German movie. And so I had to go to four blockbusters, you know, in uh, Eugene, Oregon before I found one that had it. <laughs> uh, and it's what a were great... you doing in Eugene? What's not to do in Eugene? I was following the dead around on oh, tour. Oh, sure. sure. Of course you were. No, my grandparents lived in Eugene. I used to spend summers there as a kid. Peter Falk is in that movie. Yeah. So the premise of the movie is that uh, angels kind of walk among us as guardian angels watching over the, the German title is Himmel over Berlin. The sky's over Berlin, oh. he- heaven, heaven over Berlin. And so you kind of see the living go about their day in color while in stately black and white, you see kind of these trench coated angels walking among them, not really helping, but just kind of listening to their prayers and problems. Um, so you hear the inner monologues of a lot of these Berliners having either a good day or a bad day. Um, among them, you see kind of an old man who remembers the Roaring Twenties in Berlin kind of wandering through the ruins of Potsdamer Platz, where the the film is centered, just trying to figure out where the Café Josti was. Mm. And he can't figure it out because now it's just this, by that time, you might as well be on the moon. It's this crazy, barren desert in the middle of Berlin, which is probably how you first saw Potsdamer Platz. Yeah, I, I climbed up one of the observation towers. They built viewing platforms yeah. so that we could kind of gawk at the east. Yeah, it was... Um it was extraordinary. So I I first went to Berlin in the summer of 89 when it was still a, a, a divided city and did all of the stuff, you know, went um, went up on the platform and surveyed out over this, this incredible spooky, spooky place. It was just a ghost town, vacant lot, 150 acre vacant lot in the middle of the 
one of the biggest cities in Europe. Yeah, and you turn around and look at the West Berlin side, and it's like, West Berlin. And then you look over there, and it just seems like, oh, great. Did Jeff. You, did you change your money and, did, and go into the East? Did. Went through the whole thing. Went through the the weird little maze where they put you in a room, and then somebody looks at you through a window, and you have to talk to somebody, and then they open a door, and you go into the next room and close the door. They were happy to have people come spend money. Yeah. Well, and so then, and they forced you to change money. Yeah. But then when you're on the other side, you know, you'd walk a little ways and somebody would sidle up to you and say, like, do you want to really change money? And we changed, I don't know what, $20 or $50 or something into East Deutschmarks. Into Honecker Fennigs or whatever. Ostmarks. And then uh, we had more money than we could spend. And we went to every place there Kings. was. And there, and so we ended up going up to the restaurant in the oh, TV tower. The, what's it called? The something tour? Uh and, Yes. And we were uh, these stupid American 21-year-olds. And this restaurant, you know, this was where all the high mucky mucks were having dinner, like proper dinner. Like party members? Yeah, like people in suits. And we're in there just like, gargoyle, more wine, and getting like wasted (laughs) and eating whatever schnitzel with egg on top and some kartoffel. And I mean, when I think back now, I'm kind of embarrassed. And there's not you, much you, from you my are not goodwill ambassadors. No, not much from my youth that embarrasses me. Like at this, at this point, Sting is probably doing a concert in Red Square. Yeah, and you guys are still. I stand by most of the terrible things I did. You guys are this, still chucking pretzels off the fence. Oh, we're just like hardy, hardy, hard throwing shrimp at each other, and <laughs> uh, and all around us are people who are, you know, like appalled. And and uh, also probably making probably Putin Correctly. Putin was there and that radicalized him and he was just he like, was like I'm, you know I'm getting sick of the KGB I think I might just become a shoe salesman and then he saw you and he was like you know what America F these guys. <laughs> yeah. America Niet he thought Americanski Niet you should see uh, Wings of Desire like because yeah, the whole thing fun. the whole thing is set in Potsdamer plots like it's such a <laughs> It's such a wasteland at this point that a big plot point is a French circus pulling up and setting up a tent because it's it's empty real estate in the middle of Berlin. But they're ghosts? When was the movie made? Uh, 87, 88. So before. Yeah, the wall is still there. Uh, and I think a lot of it was shot there, I think, although I think they rebuilt a section of wall for some of it. Peter Falk is in town playing himself shooting a, like a World War II movie. So he's the big movie star. All the kids are, are running up to him and saying, Columbo, Columbo. Everybody loves Peter Falk. There's a plot twist involving his character that I won't reveal, but is amazing. But the, the angels are just kind of circulating among these, oh, these yeah. the, you know, and they, and they can go over the wall. Like there's a, a shocking, the camera moves over the wall. It's a fake section of wall, obviously, for this shot. But it's a real, you know, at the time I watched it, I thought nothing of it. But to a German audience, it would be like the train coming at the screen at you. Right, right, right. Because the camera cranes over the Berlin Wall and we see the, the the angels in their trench coats walking down the middle of the death strip. Well, what was crazy to me was, you know, I went back to Berlin a, f- a few times in the 90s and Potsdamer Platz was still an empty, but now open, but empty. After the wall came down. Yeah. And, uh, and even spookier, maybe, by virtue of crossing this no man's land, but in an open city. And then going later... <laughs> To see Potsdamer Plots. Well, this is the strangest part of this story. Uh, I mean, it was like a train coming at me through through, uh, through the screen. Uh, because 150 acres of prime real estate opened up in the middle of one of Europe's busiest and densest cities. You know, an opportunity that will never come again. And capitalism, as it is wont to do, Yay. pounced. Thank you, capitalism. Um, I mean, not at first. I mean, at first it was a big, you know, the wall went down and that was a big symbol. And you'd go have your pictures by the graffitied section of the wall through poster. And that's where um, Roger Waters did that big concert where he did the oh, right. wall right. on the wall. That was in a, an, a, an empty Potsdamer Platz. But uh, of course, immediately plans were made to redevelop this um, place. and Because you know, the capital city's moving back to Berlin. Capital city, and it's a symbolic rejoining of the two halves of the city. But even at the time, as the plans, as the architects are meeting and the committees are meeting and the government's voting... Berlin is skeptical of what's going to happen. Like, no matter what gets built here, it is not going to be of a piece with the the weird rim of West Berlin that surrounds it to one side or the government buildings of East Berlin on the other. Um, there's going to be something kind of bizarre and theme parky about it. And 
it's funny that it's called Europe's Times Square because it exactly become it's exactly the same debates that happened in New York around the disnification of the real Times Square. You know, like what are we building here? Well, and also it was getting rebuilt in a time when at least I would not say was peak architecture or style, right? I mean, when did the reconstruction really start? Uh, In the mid-90s. Yeah. The greatest living architects in the world are invited to submit plans and and are given skyscrapers. Renzo Piano, Richard Rogers, Rem Kohlhaas. But it is acrimonious. Kohlhaas famously storms out of some jury meeting um, because he disagrees with the whole vision. It's it's a powder keg. And, and yeah. I, I think everyone knows, look, you're going to want, we all know what we're going to wind up with. There's going to be some green space and some big skyscrapers and some 90s style malls. Super mall. Super mall. Freedom tower. And that's exactly like when we, when we booked an apartment there and stayed there, I didn't know the history of it. And I was shocked to see we were essentially above mall of America, Germania. Yeah. You, you were know, in the uh, Dubai airport. Basically. Uh, and we're right across the street from what is the Sony center, which is, Sony and uh, Daimler-Benz both have massive corporate headquarters there. The two great corporations of the 21st century, <laughs> Sony and Daimler-Benz. Who really won World War II? <laughs> the Sony Center in particular, uh, I think, is a Renzo Piano joint. And it's it's very Times square in that it's got a big kind of showy um, plaza where, you know, it's a public space, but it's a very corporatized public space with kind of a crazy off-kilter umbrella-like colorful canopy above it and a bunch of and a bunch of public um attractions that are all kind of disnified like there's a mini legoland in that building hot there's <laughs> there's, a, there's a german film museum which is actually pretty there's a pretty good german film museum in that building a couple other like there's it's touristy stuff people can uh can see it in the jason bourne movie Oh, is one of the Bourne movies have the Sony yeah, Center? Yeah, there's, there's a, well, Bourne, it, 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 there's a scene where he's in Potsdamer Plots and, and the, the crowded chaos of the place plays a role in him escaping all the CIA assassins that are chasing him around. So it, it has kind Spoiler of, alert. it's be, kind of become the sad 21st century equivalent of what it would have been in the 20s. It's still a, cen- a center of commerce and culture, but now that is very much malls and tourist shopping and not so much, you know, avant-garde theater and, uh, sexy, sexy, um, cross-dressing cabarets. Right. Uh, that would have been hard to get people to pay for in 1999. (laughs) Maybe Berliners would have gone for it. Yeah. Um, It's a, it's the second Jason Bourne movie. Oh, I only watched the Jeremy Renner one. That's the only good one. (laughs) It's the Bourne supremacy and he's, I guess, running around in there somewhere. But it's such a, um, it's such a, you know, it feels cookie cutter. You know, you can sense that it was all built and planned at the same time, not of a piece with anything around it. Like we needed a laundromat and we were like, oh, well, we're staying in the middle of Berlin. We'll just find someplace to do our clothes because sure. we, we had rented a little apartment literally above one of these malls. And it turns out there is not a laundromat for miles around. It's not meant to be lived. It's not a lived experience. No. I mean, you, you have a little flat there where you have a washer dryer, but our Airbnb did not. And so we were loading up dirty underwear into into our luggage and hopping on the U-Bahn into some, you know, part of town where like working class and immigrant people were actually using the coin laundry. The world, yeah. Because there was, you know, nothing but. Nothing but Disney and malls as far as the eye could see. I mean, oh. if, you, if you wanted to be next to a Zara and a Uniqlo, it was the place to go. But. Wait a minute. I think the I think the the Bourne movie that I'm thinking of is in Alexander Plots and not in Leipzig or Strasse. So anyway, never mind me. They they missed their opportunity. <laughs> no, the, but there's a Friedrichstrasse scene anyway. Don't Is it closer to Brandon Brigade? Is it further north? You know, it the, really the star of the Bourne supremacy is Berlin. Agree 100%. Like, for me, the Bourne movies are all about Jason Bourne finding impossibly good parking places 
in European city centers where I know for a fact it's impossible to do so. He really does just pull up right out front, doesn't he? He got that treadstone training, and now he can just find a good parking space anywhere. He's praying to the parking gods. Must be in the front row. And that concludes Potsdamer Plots. Entry 972.NE0406. Certificate number 38531 in the omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in our era or that Berlin is a free city and not a Russian rump state. Berlin's underwater. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project. Our handles for more uh, hot takes on Central Europe were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with your own special hot takes on Germany and Russia and Ukraine. If you're Jochen, please send us all your corrections. Jochen, I think, is probably going to be fine with it. I mean, he, uh, like a lot of Germans, like most Europeans, they go into any conversation with Americans assuming 20% of what they say is wrong. It's got to be higher than that. Maybe 30, maybe 45% of what we say is wrong. The one thing that they don't like about us, in my experience, is that we're too enthusiastic. Every European I've ever met is like, why are you so excited? Why are you throwing Vice first off the TV tower? Yeah, like you're so... Settle down. You're like, wee, what's so fun? I'm like, you know, it's just the, our American way. Uh, you're the ones that built a mini Legoland in a Cold War wilderness. Yeah, we're just Germany. as depressed as you. It's just that, you know, we we got like a cool rock and roll soundtrack behind. Um, you can hang out with other futurelings who probably will all be arguing about this show as they do every other show on social media. You can mail us things and we love to get things in the mail at PO box five, five, seven, four, four shoreline, Washington, nine, eight, one, five, five. What do you got there? Ken, a postcard from Philadelphia. Philip moved here a few years ago. Philip from Philip Delphi. Philip from Philly, Philly from Philly. Moved here and tw- moved to Philadelphia in 2018, and was fascinated with the SS United States. Is that where it's in Dry Dock? Mm-hmm. Not and, Dry Dock. Sitting in sorry, the wet dock. Wet dock. <laughs> and that's how he discovered the Omnibus. He was trying to find a podcast about the SS United States, and became an Omnibus regular hey, listener. Isn't all right. It? I had ne- it had never occurred to me that that's an avenue through which people find a podcast. Is they they find a, they're looking for a show about. Uh, the presidential physical fitness test, and you have a episode called the presidential physical fitness test. It's why we should stop giving some of our episodes really esoteric Insane names. Insane names. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, but I, I've heard from people that are like, "Oh yeah, I discovered the omnibus because I really wanted to know about washing bears." But th- that also leads to the side effect of um, I was hoping for a informative show about oh, yeah. uh, the Great Lisbon earthquake. And instead, they just um, they talked about Hurricane Andrew for thirty eight minutes. What yeah. kind of what kind of a Lisbon earthquake podcast is this? Those people get out pretty early, I think, uh, but they often do leave reviews. <laughs> <laughs> they always leave one star reviews, and I wish it could be zero. Uh, but that's how Philip found the podcast. Uh, he saw you do a show in Brooklyn once, but he went to the wrong bar for the meet and greet. <laughs> Ended up befriending some Salvadorans and said that actually I've hung out with John and I've hung out with Salvadorans and you did the right thing. No, sir. I'm sorry that we didn't meet. Speaking of missed connections, Ken, my TV rabbit ears broke, so I haven't been able to watch Jeff. Oh, well, that's, that's a diss. That's really no excuse. That's a subtle diss. Not even that subtle. Fix your rabbit ears. My Phillip. rabbit ears died and my grandma, you know, won't change the channel. Anyway, he's moving to Boston and uh, sent us a Philadelphia postcard oh. to bookend uh, the the four years of his life where he discovered Omnibus. There's a lot of other interesting stuff in Boston you'll discover. Is there any Boston-themed Omnibus? Yes. Country? We've talked about the Smoot. That's true. Uh, we've talked about uh, at MIT the, uh, the, the... Oh, yeah, the train The train, train station, train, train dudes. Um, have we talked... What have we done about Harvard have we done any shows about Harvard? It seems like we quote the Simpsons a lot. That's kind of the same. Well, and we, we, we yeah, we we tangentially refer to Harvard people, but we've never done a Harvard show, and we haven't done a lot of Revolutionary War material. No, it's true, and we haven't done a lot of Boston is uh, the meanest city in America material either. We could, you know, Boston and Seattle are the same size. Is that right? On a list of like how big American cities are, Boston and Seattle, right next to each but other. But we are like one-tenth as racist. 
Right. But, and also we, you know, both cities are what riven by water. Uh, both cities have, to be fair, many cities are (laughs) riven by water. Both cities have, uh, extremely expensive tunnels that, uh, that were built. That's true. You know, ours went, ours went much better. It did. The big dig was like the, um, the specter tried to use to dissuade Seattle against our tunnel. We talked about it a lot in the newspapers here. Big dig, big dig, big dig. Have you been through the big dig? Have you driven through that tunnel? Once. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time sitting in traffic in it thinking, yeah, this really solved your traffic problems a while. I've been in there once and I got to enjoy it for about 45 minutes. It was fantastic. Oh, you were stuck in traffic there too? Oh, yeah. It's the craziest thing. There's no other way to get through it. Traffic jam. Well, yeah, here's the way to get through it. Two in the morning. Then you just plow through. Anyway, support the show if you enjoy our, our charismatic asides. At uh, patreon.com slash omnibus project. We appreciate your uh, financial support of the show, and there are lots of cool things waiting for you there. At the Elite Washing Bear level, you could even uh, ha- have us do your bidding like Yokin did. You'd be a Yokin at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, This recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.